0: I'm like, oh, there we go. All right. All right. Oh, good morning again. My name, is, uh, my name is Kelly Scott. I'm one of uh, our pastors here at Trinity. Um, if you are new to Trinity, Trinity, if you're visiting, I would love to meet you after the service. I'll be in the back in the entrance hall. I uh, would love to uh, get to know you a bit. Uh, Casey Crines, uh, our, um, our worship director, told me that in light of all the glorious baptism this morning, and uh, and introducing and blessing our fellows, that I have a full 10 minutes to preach a sermon. I countered with an offer of a quick 40 minutes. Um, and we, we landed somewhere slightly uh, in the middle with uh, maybe a slightly shorter sermon than usual. Don't hold me to it, though. Um, so, as a few of you start your stopwatches, I do invite you to, uh, to turn to Genesis chapter 2. Verse 15 in your Bible or in your order or in your order of worship. Um, we're going to get to that in just a minute. By the way, just in case you thought there was some truth to that backroom negotiating, uh, we're we're on the same page. We're we're good. We save that for trading lunch snacks. The uh, the negotiating. Um, as many of you know, we are in the midst of a series on the book of Genesis, and for the past five weeks, uh, we've been in Genesis 1 and 2, hearing about the good news of creation. The good news of a God who spoke the world into existence through the sheer power of his word and created all things good. The good news of our creation as human beings in the image and likeness of God, created for community, created for good work, and created for rest. This is the beginning of our story, and it is very good. Today we come to the part of the story that that hopefully none of us find particular delight in thinking about or talking about. And that is humanity's fall. Our fall away from God and into sin or corruption. But it is a part of the story that, that we need to talk about. And actually needs to be at least a part of our conversation every week. Because it's part of the reality that we live in every day of our lives. I've actually talked about this quite a bit this morning because uh, Pastor Chris lined me up to teach on sin in our Confessing the Faith class and lined me up to teach on the fall this morning, which raises a few questions in my mind. Um, does he think I have a particular acquaintance or familiarity with this topic? Um, but for all of the, the goodness and beauty in the world, we also know uh, intuitively know that the world is not the way it's supposed to be and while we have bodies and minds and loves in our lives for which we may be very grateful and we should be grateful we are also frequently aware that our bodies and our minds and our desires are broken our passage this morning God's word for us this morning reveals and brings clarity to what led to and what leads to the brokenness we experience in the world and inside of ourselves. And it leads to clarity on what God has done to restore us and to make things right and to make us right with him. And so my hope this morning is that whether you are a believer in Christ at this point or, or not, you are, you're here and seeking and searching and, and listening, Uh, My hope is that this world will help all of of us to understand our world and ourselves and what Christ has done for us more clearly. And so please uh, read along with me in Genesis, not out loud, but please read along with me in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Skipping to chapter 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. A few verses later we read and the lord god made for adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them and this is the word of the lord let's go to god in prayer heavenly father we thank you for your presence among us this morning we ask as we examine consider your word that you would be with us that you would soften our heart that you would give us receptive hearts to understand ourselves, to understand you more clearly. Lord, would you guide the teaching of it? Would you work to bring life by your spirit in our hearts? In the name of Christ, amen. If you walk down uh, what's known as the lawn at the University of Virginia, as many of you have, uh, moving away from Jefferson's rotunda, and approaching Old Cabell Hall, which sits directly opposite of the rotunda, you can find the words of Jesus, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Those words are inscribed above the columns on Old Cabell Hall uh, in uh, the original Greek. Now, uh, Old Cabell was completed in 1898, during a time when the university was much more supportive of faith in Christ. Than Jefferson had been. And so it's possible that when these words were inscribed there, it's uncertain, but possible that, that the, the people who put it there actually intended it for to mean what Jesus meant. And I'm not sure what percentage of students read Greek in 1898. I know that a few more studied the classics than today. But at least most UVA students students would have had the majority, if not all, of their classes on the lawn. They would have walked past Old Cavill every day and seeing these words and so these words of jesus could have and perhaps for some did serve as a daily reminder that ultimate truth is found in him and in his word and the true freedom is found in our lives being conformed to his word Of course, they could still serve uh, as such a reminder today if you're a UVA student or if you walk past the lawn regularly. Actually, my wife Nancy and I, a few evenings per week, walk right past Old Cabell. So note to self, I I need to start noticing this. I believe these words at the top of Old Cabell provide us an imperfect but helpful analogy to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that is referred to 11 times in our passage. A helpful analogy to to how the tree was designed to function in the garden. Again, these words of Jesus, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. When seen rightly, should be a continual reminder to lawnies and to lawn frequenters that the truth that leads to freedom in life is found in God alone, in serving him, the author of life. And in the same way, God planted the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden to serve as a daily reminder to Adam and Eve that he is God and that they are not. As long as they remembered and lived by that one simple truth, they would remain free. As St. Augustine says, God had given Adam one very short and easy commandment to support him in healthy obedience. God's intention in this command was to impress upon this created being that he was the Lord and that free service unto the Lord was in the creature's own interest. Similarly, Dutch theologian Gerhardus Vos, uh, whom Chris mentioned last week, he describes the tree as the God-appointed instrument to lead man through probation to that state of religious and moral maturity wherein his highest blessedness was connected. And he goes on to describe that highest blessedness as, uh, as an obedience that flows from love for and trust in God alone. You see, uh, Voss p- uh, points us here to the reality that though Adam and Eve were without sin in the garden, they had not yet reached spiritual maturity. They had not yet passed into that state of incorruptible glory that would have eventually been theirs had they abide- abided in God's command. To get get theological on you for a moment, Uh, this one short and easy command was the basis of what we call God's covenant of works with humanity. In this covenant, God would be their God and he would grant them eternal life so long as they trusted that his word was good and true. And the command or, or the law that he gave them, as is true with all of God's laws, really was good the Apostle Paul says, his law is holy, righteous, and good. And as Augustine says, it, it, was, it was given to, to support them in healthy obedience. Voss said it was given to, to lead them onto maturity. But good commands can be twisted, right? And that leads us to our simple outline for the rest of our time. Our flight from God and God's pursuit. Of us, Our flight from God and God's pursuit of us. As we look at these two movements in our passage, we need to keep in mind that there are, there are two things going on here, here in terms of uh, how we relate to this passage, or in terms of how the passage relates to us. One is Adam and Eve's immediate experience, which we're going to look at closely and we'll actually spend most of our time on. Uh, One, because it's the heart of the passage, and two, because it speaks powerfully into our own immediate experience. But the other thing that we need to keep in mind is is this broader connection that we have to Adam and Eve, which the Western individualistic side of our minds tends to not like. um, Because as our first parents, Adam and Eve both represent us before God, in this covenant of works that i just mentioned and they pass on to us their traits both physical and spiritual right and so there's this there's this immediate connection right which we can relate to and relate to their experience but there's also this broader connection uh, as our first parents that we need to keep in mind in chapter 3 uh, verses 1 through 6 we see that our flight from god begins with the root of all sin, which could be summarized as deceit. Our flight from God begins with lies spoken about God and ourselves, which are then believed as a humble, reliant posture before God is traded, for, traded or exchanged for a prideful, self-ruling posture before God. Romans 1 states it plainly. They exchange the truth about God for a lie and this root of deceit is why the book of revelation describes satan as that ancient serpent who is called the devil and satan the deceiver of the whole world scripture describes him as the chief deceiver and chief among the fallen angels and scripture doesn't give us a whole lot of detail uh, about this fall of angels from god but it appears that prior to adam and eve's fall away from God. There there was a parallel fall in the spiritual realm. The book of Jude speaks of angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling and in their pride they seek to bring humanity down with them. So, So what are the lies that we see here at the root of our sin? What are these lies? But at the end of verse 1, the the first lie of the world is a subtle twist on God's word. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? You see, God had only forbidden one tree. But Satan misquotes him to make it appear that God was more restrictive than he actually is. He seems to be trying to plant a seed freedom and her joy. And we can totally relate to this, Right? How often does our own sin stem from an underlying mindset, whether it's a conscious or subconscious belief? How often does it stem uh, from this belief or this lie that this, or this twist that God might not have our best interest in mind? That he is overly restrictive. And that our lives would actually be much more fulfilling and much more satisfying if we lived outside of his law, outside of his ways. We believe that that lust or promiscuity will be more satisfying than faithfulness. That seeking praise and success or financial comfort will be more satisfying than integrity or generosity or seeking to know God or humbly serving our neighbor or sharing the gospel. We might believe that venting anger or stubbornly defending our actions to our kids or spouse or parents or siblings or roommates will be so much more satisfying than showing gentleness and swallowing pride. We all know this subtle lie too well. And interestingly, Eve actually corrects the serpent. In verses 2 and 3, stating that the God had only forbidden one tree. She, she doesn't seem to stumble at this point. But but then she does her own subtle twisting of God's words when she adds the restrictive phrase, and neither shall you touch it, in verse 3. So perhaps the, the magic of this lie is working on her. But after this attempt um, to ease in with a subtle twist, Satan changes tactics in verse 4 with a direct rejection of God's word. You will surely, or you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The slur on God's goodness is no longer veiled. It's no longer a subtle twist. It's a direct assault now. God is keeping something from you. Even though Adam and Eve already had the dignity and the glory of reflecting the likeness of God, He's saying that that to really find fullness of of life, you need more. You need more than being the image and likeness. You need to be on equal footing with God. You need equality with God. You need the knowledge of good and evil. And what is that? What, What is the knowledge of good and evil that they naively seek? One of the most common answers to that question over the centuries is that that Adam and Eve would attain to an experiential knowledge of the difference between good and evil that would not be possible so long as they remained under God's rule, so long as they remain in the good. And the difficulty, though, with this view is that God says later in verse 22, which will be in next week's sermon, uh, but but God says later, um, behold, they become like us knowing good and evil. And of course, God does not participate in or have an experiential knowledge of evil. The better view, uh, and and I'm stealing from another Dutch guy named Herman Bobink here, the better view is that the issue at stake is not primarily the content of knowledge that Adam and Eve would obtain, but rather the manner by which they would obtain that knowledge. Knowing good and evil in this sense is to determine and judge for oneself what is good. It's the ability to to self-rule, to be like God in a sense that they were never intended to, that they were not capable of, and that would in fact lead to their death. And in verse 6, Adam and Eve reach out for and grab hold of that self-rule. This is the root of sin, the lie that we are sufficient to be gods of our own lives. I really want us to see here that that the understanding, this root of of self-deceit and self-rule, is actually so helpful. Because you see, every day in our hearts, there is a battle going on that centers around the question... Who will be God in my life? Who will rule? Who will rule when the alarm goes off? Or When the kids wake up? Or maybe the kids are the alarm. <laughs> Who will rule when something goes wrong at work or a child's having a really tough day? Who will rule when I sit down to meet with someone or I sit at my desk for focused work? Who will rule when I write this sermon? Who will rule when I'm tired at the end of the day? When chores await? When someone I live with is not acting the way I want them to? Who will rule when I choose how to spend the few minutes or hours of leisure that I have each day? Will it be God's rule of love that leads to life? Or will it be my rule of self-protection and self-gratification that leads to death. The Apostle Paul writes at length about this battle. And the scriptures, including Paul's letter, seem to make it clear that, that God desires to have a conversation with us on this subject throughout the day. Whether it's a quick prayer, you could call it like a little text message prayer to God or a brief phone call uh, in in transitions in your day. Or whether it's sitting down uh, with God or or having a walk and and spending extended time with God. God desires for this subject to be a conversation or part of our conversation with him throughout the day. You see, sometimes in those prayers, um, if I pray, um, but sometimes in those prayers, I just focus on the circumstances. I just, I just pray for outcomes, which isn't necessarily bad. We should pray, um, as long as we're praying for the, for the right outcomes, right? We should pray for them. But I have found those times of prayer or conversation with God to be more fruitful and more freeing when they're not just about outcomes, but are also about what's going on at the root of my heart. When I'm confessing, What's really going on in my heart, and not just some things I did or thought or said, but I'm, I'm getting to the core. What is going on at the root of my heart? And when I'm asking God to free me from my self-rule and to empower me to live by His Spirit with and in His love. And God is pleased to respond to these prayers. Jesus said, if you, know, if you who are evil know how to good, give good gifts... How much more will your Heavenly Father give you His Spirit when you ask Him? And He calls us to persistently ask Him. And so our flight from God began with the root of all sin, uh, the deceit of self-rule, briefly... We see in verse 7 that our flight from God continues or is extended through the fruit of our sin. In verse 7, the the first fruit of sin that we see is shame. It it moves Adam and Eve to cover themselves. You see, outside of God's rule, they, they sense that something's off. They sense that their desires have changed. And it's not that their nakedness was evil, but they are embarrassed by this shift in desire. Augustine actually says they're embarrassed by the insubordination of their flesh now. And, they, and not only do they, they sense something wrong with themselves, they, they likely sense a vulnerability to the selfish desires now of the other. In verse 8, they try to hide from God in fear, running behind trees. They are very aware of their guilt before God in breaking his command, even if they could not yet have named it as guilt. And in verses 12 and 13 they blame they make true statements in their attempts to pin the blame outside of themselves adam pins it on eve and kind of on god too and eve pins it on the devil Uh, they make they're seeking to self-vindicate as we often do but they don't humble themselves they don't take ownership for their sin and so the what we see is that the fruit of sin is to fly even further from god and from one another in shame and in fear and in blame. How does God respond? How does God respond to Adam and Eve's usurping of his rightful place in their lives? He could have He could have destroyed them immediately. I mean, he had promised that they would die. He could have given them the permanent silent treatment and let them die naturally in their shame and guilt. But that's not what he does he goes after them he pursues them and speaks to them and what we begin to see already in this passage just three chapters into the bible is the gospel the good news of God's pursuit of us in verse 8 God comes to Adam and Eve in the cool of the day or literally the wind of the day It's the same Hebrew word used for the Spirit of God. And it will not be the last time in Scripture that God makes the presence of His Spirit known in the wind. He moves toward Adam and Eve, and He moves toward us before we ever move toward Him. We witnessed this in in our baptisms this morning, that God moves toward us before we ever move toward Him. He did with Adam and Eve. And he does with us. And while Adam and Eve are hiding in fear, God calls them out. He calls them out. He asks them questions. Not because he doesn't know where they are or because he didn't understand what happened, but he draws them out into a conversation to draw them back in to the light. He convicts them. And I want us to see this morning, it is grace that convicts us. When you sense God's conviction, that is His grace to you, calling you back into the light. Adam and Eve aren't quite there yet, though, are they? We're going to see Eve confessing faith in the next chapter, chapter four, but for now, we only see a quasi-confession. That's really not a confession at all. They're not—they're not taking ownership of their rebellion. They give a very half-hearted confession. And yet, what do we see? God and his mercy continues to pursue them. While Adam and Eve had tried to cover the guilt uh, and shame with measly leaves from a tree that would feel nothing when the leaves were torn from it, leaves that will not cover their shame for long, that will need to be replaced every week, probably every few days. In verse 21, God takes the skin of a living, breathing animal that does experience the pain of death. And through the sacrifice of this animal provides a more lasting covering for their guilt and shame. And so already here, moments after Adam and Eve have rebelled, God gives them and us a sign pointing to the complete, permanent covering for sin that he would provide for us in his son through his work on the cross. Taking our sin and shame on himself, Taking our death on himself. <clears throat> but Jesus not only covers us, he also fulfills the calling to trust and obey that Adam and Eve failed to do and that we fail to do. For this is the Son who was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to fast and to be tempted by the devil with the same kinds of temptations that we see in the garden. There he's tempted with the twisting of God's word. When Satan says, throw yourself down, and as the scripture says, God will command his angels and they will lift you up. But Jesus refuses to twist the word and take the divine prerogative to test and to try. There in the wilderness, Jesus remembers that that the word that comes from the mouth of God is ultimately what gives life. Over bread that surely would have been pleasing to the eye and good for food. And there in the wilderness, Jesus also resists a direct assault on God's rule when Satan plainly offers him the kingdoms of the world, a false shortcut to the glory that would be his in God's time. He was pursuing Adam and Eve, and he was pursuing us in the wilderness. Fulfilling the covenant where we had failed. See, where there's fullness of life in the garden, everything that Adam and Eve needed for abundant life, where they have all of that, they disbelieve God's word and bring death, and so they're cast out of the garden. And so what Jesus does is he goes into the formlessness and void of the desert, of the wilderness, bereft of substance, and there he trusts in God's word. Jesus goes into the cast out place of Adam and Eve's death and in faithfulness he brings life. He he reverses their flight away from God, undoing their wrongs to bring them and us back in to grace. Adam and Eve saw and grabbed hold of the grabbed hold of the fruit to seek equal footing with God. But as Philippians 2 tells us, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not see equality with God as something to be grasped. For this reason, the scripture says that Jesus is our second Adam. What that means is that he is the true and faithful Adam. He is the life-giving Adam. Just as we experience death with Adam as our head, we experience forgiveness in life when we are joined with Christ as our head through faith in Him. He died our death under the covenant of works covering our guilt and He fulfilled the law of obedience under the covenant of works in order to bring us back in, or in order to bring us in to God's grace, in order to bring us into the covenant of grace. For as an Adam all die, So all who are in Christ will be made alive. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Father, Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are a God of grace. We thank you that you um, are a God who pursues us when we are running the other way. You call out to us. You convict us. And Jesus, we thank you for your perfect work on the cross, providing a permanent covering for our shame. Lord, we thank you that you have transferred your righteousness to us, that we can come to you freely, that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Lord, I pray that uh, we would live this week... um, very aware of the battle within our hearts, um, but also very aware um, that we know in Christ um, the war has been won and that you will continue to work out your good plan in our lives. We lift this up in Christ's name. Amen.